Good morning, everybody. It is so sweet to look out and see your faces. So, so sweet. Uh, It's a little surreal, honestly. I'm used to standing there and looking into an iPhone and trying this probably about four or five times. So you you get the first take one time through today. So here we go. If you're worshiping with us online, I just want to welcome you too. Um, Right now, we've got to be separated, but as Pastor Reed just prayed, we are one family, united in the Spirit and in the Gospel. So please pray with me as we turn to God's Word. Father, you are so good. Thank you that some of us can be together this morning and enjoy this fellowship with one another. Thank you that this fellowship is just an appetizer of the fellowships that's to come. Bless your people this morning as we open up your word, as I, as I break it open. Help us as we look into what it means for us to belong to Jesus and follow after him. Fill us this morning with your spirit, we pray. Amen. So as we, as we work through, as you read through 2 Corinthians, one thing that you'll notice right off of the bat is how Paul showcases. He puts his difficulties, his trials, his afflictions right out in the open. He doesn't hide them. He's not embarrassed by them. In fact, he actually boasts in them. In chapter 1, we read about the deadly peril that Paul faced and the discouragement that set into his soul. And then just in chapter 2, we hear about the inner anguish as he was dealing with this painful situation in Corinth. And now in our passage this morning, we hear about the difficulties that he faced in Troas. So I want to ask us, why is he making such a big deal of his trials? Why is he making such a big deal of these afflictions? Why does he put his difficulties up front and center? It's because these trials and these difficulties, they're not undermining his, his authority. They're not undermining his credibility as a message of the gospel. No, what they do is they mark him out as a follower of Christ. The trials, the difficulties, the suffering that he faces mark him out as a follower of Jesus. And as you and I follow Jesus, our lives will bear the same distinctive scent of Christ too. And this scent of Christ, these, how we bear our difficulties, our trials, sets us apart from the rest of the world. So would you open your Bibles with me this morning and let's look at our passage together. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through the end of the chapter. Please follow along with me. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, 
even though a door was opened to me in, in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. From one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, we speak in Christ. So Paul is contrasting his ministry, his ministry from teachers operating in Corinth. These teachers he calls, in verse 17, peddlers of God's word. So the, these men were, they were using God's word, using teaching the gospel to serve themselves. And these teachers were likely directly opposing Paul's ministry. They were painting his ministry as weak, as insignificant, while they, on the other hand, boasted of their superiority, of their great gifts in the Lord. And so Paul is forced to defend his ministry. He's forced to defend his ministry for the sake of the gospel. But he doesn't defend it like they're promoting their ministry. He doesn't boast about his gifts. He doesn't bring forth his resume. No, he boasts in his weaknesses, in his trials, in the difficulties, the very things that they find shameful. Because, and he does it because those things savor of Jesus Christ. Those things, it's those things that savor of Christ. And so he does it, this passage is formed around two evocative metaphors, challenging metaphors. The first is a triumphant Roman military procession. And the second is a fragrant sacrifice. Like the sacrifices that were offered in the Old Testament. Sheeps, goats, bulls offered on the altar. And both of these metaphors are found for us in verse 14. So please look down with me at verse 14. Paul writes, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So let's start with just this first phrase. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. A triumphal procession was a Roman display of power. And it was a brutal public spectacle known throughout the ancient world. And Corinth, being a Roman province, would have been very familiar with it. It was when a conquering general would return from the field of battle and he would enter the city with great fanfare. And he would parade behind him prominent captives. 
and the spoils of war through the streets. So many people came to watch these parades in Rome that they had to construct scaffolding on the side of buildings to hold the crowds. They would cart stages where actors acted out scenes from the battle, celebrating the victories. And the air was filled with the incense being burned as thanksgiving to the gods. And the captives from battle were marched chained through the streets to the temple of Jupiter where they would have been put to death. So now that we have that image in our mind, let's read again verse 14. Paul says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Paul is reimagining this spectacle in Rome. But he's reimagining it where God and his kingdom are the victors. Not Rome. And Paul himself is among those chained captives of Christ paraded through the streets for all to see and to all to marvel at. And this is all to the glory of God the Father, not the Roman God, Jupiter. So this image would have instantly filled the minds of the Corinthians with the power and the glory of Rome. Because Rome claimed for itself a divine right and a dominion over all the surrounding peoples. Rome saw its divine mission to bring the glory of Rome, of the Roman Empire, of Roman civilization to all the barbarian peoples. And Rome sought to establish its glory and the the Roman peace through the sword, through bloodshed. And Paul is saying, thanks, glory, and honor be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. God has won, not Rome. His kingdom is eternal and His peace will rule. God is on His victory march, His victory parade. And He has triumphed through the blood of Christ. Not military might. The kingdoms of this world, just like Rome, will rise and fall. But there is only one kingdom that will outlast them all. And it's God's kingdom. And so after Paul takes this wide-angle shot of the parade, he zooms in to the prisoners that are walking chained behind Christ. These people were once enemies of God. And they've been overcome. And they're now among the spoils of His victory. They've been overcome by the might of His grace. And they're constrained by chains of love. Paul says, that's me. I'm among those prisoners. I have been subdued. I am a prisoner of God's grace. Every effort that Paul made to exalt himself above God had been shattered, had been laid low. All of his efforts had been shown fruitless to attain righteousness. 
and they were just paving the way for eternal defeat. And Christ showed him that. He revealed that to him. He revealed the emptiness of his ways and showed him the extent of his love. The victory is God's. Paul's saying, I can't boast in anything. I can't boast in anything but God. And this is how Paul depicts our salvation. God subduing our rebellion. Because apart from Christ, we all war against God and His kingdom. And we seek to establish our own kingdoms. We revile submission to God. We actually take the very things that God has given to us, like our intellect, our charisma, our personality, and we try to get life, but we try to get life without God. And He breaks us down. He breaks in. He shows us the ends of our ways and He opens our eyes to life in Christ. He shows us that Christ has done to give, he shows us what Christ, all that Christ has done to give us life, to include us in his victory. And by that, he binds us to Christ with chains of love. So this scene is victorious, it's triumphant, it reveals God's ultimate victory. But it's also very sobering because it pictures us. Pictures Paul, the captive of Christ, but though marching to his death. Paul will even go on to say in chapter 4, verse 11, For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Christ might be manifest in our mortal flesh. It was this point that the Corinthians could not understand. They could not understand if God was victorious, as Paul was proclaiming, if God was great, if God was victorious, and you are God's servant, why are you facing so much difficulty? Why are you facing so much trouble? Why are you facing so much hardship? If God's for you, who can be against you, right? They could not see that life in Christ, participation in God's victory, means following Jesus to death. And this is the exact same thing that Peter stumbled over. Do you remember that point in the Gospels when Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter had this moment of glory where he said, You're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You are the one that God has sent into the world to bring his kingdom. And then Jesus, following that that declaration of who he was, he, he, he turns to them and says, I'm I'm going to the cross. I'm going to be crucified by the Romans, and then in three days I will rise. At that announcement, Peter said, no. He said, let it not be. 
Then after rebuking Peter, Jesus said, If anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Because our participation in God's ultimate victory means picking up our cross and following after Jesus. And it's often going to look like defeat, like it did in Paul's life. Paul's cross, your cross, my cross, that we encounter in the life of Christ, it doesn't show that we are inferior. It doesn't show that we do not have enough faith. It doesn't show that we're on the wrong path. It doesn't show that God is against us. No, the cross is the mark of a follower of Jesus. Bearing the cross is the mark of a follower of Jesus. Because we are captives of a crucified king. Dietrich Bonhoeffer famously put it like this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Our life in Christ is marked by meaningful suffering. Our life in Christ is marked by meaningful suffering. So the next illustration that Paul uses is that of a fragrant sacrifice offered to God. On Sundays, growing up, my mom would put a pot roast into the oven on low before we went out to church. And so when we came into the garage, before we opened the door, we could smell it. That scent came through the door. And then when you opened the door, the whole room was filled with it. And it just made our anticipation for lunch grow. Do you, do you have any memories, vivid memories that are attached to a scent, to a smell? For me, it's, it's Kenyan coffee. Kenyan coffee takes me right back to sitting at this open-air cafe in Nairobi, Kenya, where I would linger over my devotions. It just takes me right back there. Fragrances, scents are powerful. And Paul says his life is like that to people. They have to reckon with that scent. They smell it, then they have to decide about it. Do they like it or do they not like it? So look back with me at verse 14. He says, thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession and spreads through us the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Paul's life smells like Christ's life. And it's a precious fragrance to God. God loves the smell of lives that smell like Jesus. It rises up to God like a beautiful perfume. But this same Christ-like scent, like we said, it has different effects on different people. Some people will love it. They'll love the smell of Christ. 
Others will hate it. So the dominant image here is that of a sacrificial offering, like those offered in the temple. And Paul's life, it's, it smells or it savors like Christ's sacrificial offering. He writes, for we are the aroma of Christ to God. His life, Paul's life is marked by Christ-like love, Christ-like humility, Christ-like obedience, Christ-like sacrifice, Christ-like perseverance, Christ-like sincerity. All of this can be clearly seen in all that he suffers to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And it's a pleasing aroma to God. And this is true for us too, because we're in Christ. When we follow Jesus, filled with His love, bringing the gospel of Christ, building brothers and sisters up in Christ, in Him, any trial, any difficulty, any suffering that we experience along the way rises to God as a fragrant, fragrant offering, fragrant, pleasing offering. Our difficulties do not go unnoticed. They're regularly misunderstood by others, but they're not misunderstood by God. God does not miss them. He sees the obstacles. He knows the cost. And his soul is so pleased by Christ-like love, by humility, by perseverance that he's working through us. It pleases him. It makes his heart glad. Because he sees in us the image of his son. We're reflecting Jesus. This is love when we're willing to endure the cross to see people find life in Jesus. But this aroma, it doesn't just rise heavenward like we said. It spreads throughout the whole world. And as Paul took this message of the gospel, his life matched the message. His life wasn't the message. He still had a message to bring, but his life matched the message. He told people about God's love for them. He told them that Jesus, God's only son, willingly suffered punishment they deserved that they might have life. He preached the king who loved them so much that he left his glory. He died on a cross for them so that they can share in his reign. And while preaching this message, his life was conformed to the message. He left his home. He suffered greatly to welcome them in. Paul's life was saturated with Christ-like love, pictured in his willingness to suffer so that others would have life. And people had to reckon with his life and message. This is a life that you can't ignore. You can't ignore somebody who lives their life like the Apostle Paul lived his life. There's no neutral ground. They either saw his life and his message of Christ crucified, they saw it beautiful, and they caught in it the scent of eternal life, or they saw Paul as an enthusiast and someone who just disturbed the public peace. And they heard in his message nothing more than the death of a condemned criminal. Some caught the savor of life. 
and it led to life. Others caught the savor of death, and for them it led to death. And it was this gravity of this task where Paul saw that his life, it stood at this point of decision where where people were going into eternal life and people were going into eternal damnation. He says to that, he said, who's sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient to be this this point of decision? It's like like a, a breaker in the ocean where the waves come and they just crash and they break on either side of it. That was Paul. That was his role. Where he stood, he declared the gospel. His life exhibited that gospel and everyone who heard him was like a wave that broke against him and they either splashed over to life or they splashed over to death. So we've seen how Paul understands that suffering trials and difficulties they're central to his ministry because they mark him out as a follower of Christ but Paul also understands that that's what our lives are supposed to look like too as we've been working through 2 Corinthians it's been amazing for me to recognize the parallels between this letter and Paul's letter to the Philippians they're probably the uh, two Letters where we see Paul's inner man, his soul exposed. We see who Paul kind of is from the inside out. And they have many of the same themes running through them. So I want to now just point us over to, to Philippians chapter 3, 10 through 17. I'm going to read it for you because it shows how, how Paul made it his pursuit to know Christ, that his life would savor of Christ in all of its aspects. And then he calls on the the Philippians to be imitators of him. And he mourns over those who, who make the cravings of this life, worldly cravings, their end goal. He says they're enemies of the cross of Christ because they've set their God as their stomach. But he calls on the Philippians not to be like those but to rather, like him, set their lives on patterning it after Christ. So Philippians 3, 10 through 17. And then we'll close our time by asking two questions about how to apply this passage to our lives. Philippians 3, 10. Paul begins with his own desire. He says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, Christ and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any possible means I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Not that I have obtained all this, or have already been made perfect. Paul's not there yet. But I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's a captive of Christ. Brothers, I do not... Consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, I forget what is behind and I strain towards what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. Only let us hold on to what we have attained. And then here it is. Brothers, join imitating me. And keep your eyes on those 
who walk in accordance to the example that we gave you. Paul was following after Christ. He was modeling his life on Christ. He wanted his, his, his life to be an, an a intimate union, participation with Christ in all that he experienced apart from his atoning work. And he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So I'm going to finish with asking two questions. First, I want to ask, what does this mean for me as your pastor? What does this mean for me as your pastor? And then second, I want to ask, what does this mean for you as followers of Jesus? So first, how is this going to shape me going forward? The first thing, I just have a, a bullet points of ways that this is going to going to shape me. The first is it, it calls me immediately to prayer. It brings me immediately to my knees. It reminds me of Jesus in the garden when he was inviting the disciples to participate in his own suffering, to join him in prayer. He said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Pray. Pray. Because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We know that we're called to follow Christ. God's spirit testifies that to us. But our flesh wars against it. There is nothing more repulsive to our flesh than suffering. Nothing more repulsive to our flesh than, than suffering, than laying it down. It will fight tooth and nail not to die. And so Paul says, pray. And so that's where I, I move to. I need to pray. I need to pray that, that I can. The, this, is, this is the prayer. Father, conform me. Conform in me Christ's love for God and for others that compels me to serve. Even if it means suffering to see your gospel bear fruit in people's lives. See, because it's not suffering itself which is, which is beautiful in the Lord's eyes. It's love. It's love that works itself out in suffering. So the prayer is, God, work within me such a love for you and such a love for others that it will compel me to love them even in the face of suffering. This passage invites this question. It invites, is there something that God would have me lay down so that I could more freely love and embody the gospel? And the answer to that question is yes. Yes, a hundred times over. There are things that I can lie down. There are so many things that I gravitate to that I, I, I protect myself um, that, that I can lay down. And so, again, those become items of prayer. Lord, help me. Help me to lie these things down. So it's not about me. It's about you. It's about you and your purposes. One thing I love about this passage is that it speaks meaning into the trials that come through ministry. It speaks meaning and significance into what can feel discouraging and meaningless sometimes. So God is pleased. God sees. 
And he's pleased as I walk through trials that come with confronting sin, both mine and others. He's pleased when, when I carry the weight of, of suffering as walking alongside those who suffer. He's, he's pleased when I persevere in the midst of personal trials that make ministry harder. He's pleased when I continue to minister boldly in the face of public censure. He's pleased. That brings great joy and meaning to ministry, to think that my endurance in those, in those times are rising up to God, and it brings a smile to his face. This passage, it, it colors my understanding of what it means for ministry to be successful. Successful ministry, it does not necessarily mean a prominent ministry. If we really think about some of the ways that the Apostle Paul ministered, it's quite staggering. So he, he shows up to the city in Philippi, and where does he begin his ministry? He goes down to the river where he knows people are going to be praying, and there's a few women gathered there. And he begins to share about Jesus. And then he gets taken off to prison, and he shares about Jesus. And then you have a prison guard, and you have a a designer of beautiful clothes, both serving Jesus in the city of Philippi. And that's the beginning of the church. It's not beautiful. It is beautiful, but it's not glorious. It's beautiful, but it's not triumphant. God's picture of success in ministry, it looks so different than the pictures that we paint in our minds. So that's, that's encouraging to me. God, a successful ministry is one that labors in love for you, for you, each of you, who God has entrusted to me to build up into Christ. And I'm excited to do that. This passage, it also, it gives me a sober-mindedness as I look into the future. I, I, I don't want to raise any alarms, but, but if we just pay attention to what's happening in our culture, it's very clear that we are being moved to the margins, that our message is becoming less appealing to the culture and more um, just considered hate in some, in some sectors. It's labeled as hate speech. And so if our culture continues to move in the way that it do- is, which I, which I don't see it changing in the near future apart from an act of God, it gives me a sober expectation of what ministry is going to look like if God blesses me with 30 years of ministry here. 30 years is a long time to be in a culture that's moving in a way that opposes God and his work. So so what will it mean to minister faithfully? Faithful ministry always comes with a cost. It always carries a cost with it. And Jesus calls us to reckon with that cost before we enter in. So this passage just gives me a soberness of mind as we move in to what the Lord may have for us and what it may look like for us 
to serve him and for me as his minister. And lastly, it gives me expectation. And it invites me to to joyfully trust God. To bring fulfillment of his victory of his kingdom. Even in what seems like perplexing circumstances. So it gives me expectation to see God's victory move forward in the midst of darkness. There is nothing that can stop the triumphal march of God. So Paul was perplexed in his decision making. He didn't know whether to stay in Troas or to go on to Macedonia. He goes on to Macedonia and he rejoices that even though he didn't know what to do, God was still leading him on in triumphal procession. That's the nature of God's kingdom. It always moves on in triumphal procession. It always moves on. And we participate in it sometimes in a way that's very perplexing, very dark. It's, It's difficult for us to see, but then we get glimpses of his grace breaking forth. How many times is Paul writing from prison and he rejoices about God and how it is moving right there, right then? Why should that not be our expectation? As we become less um, favored in society, why should that not be our expectation? That that's exactly where God wants to put us. So that his triumphal, his triumphal procession will continue. I believe that that's the case. Now, I want to just ask, what about you? How does this word shape you? I want to invite you into that same practice to pray. To pray that God would so shape your hearts with his love. Let's pray together as a church that God would do this. That suffering loses its its fearsomeness, its scariness, because we're not focused on the suffering. We're just focused on the love. That's all that captures our gaze so that when we move forward in suffering, people can smell Christ on us. I want to invite you just to ask, is there anything, is there anything that the Spirit's bringing to mind that God would have you lay down so that others might see and savor Jesus Christ more clearly in your life? Is there any ways in which your flesh is taking, the flesh is taking a prominent place where you can say, nope, step down, this is the Spirit's place? Think about that. And I know many in our bodies are facing significant trials and difficulties or are coming through significant trials and difficulties. Know that he sees and that he is pleased in you following him through it. It doesn't, it's not a sign of his disfavor. It's not a sign of your lack of faith. 
It really is an opportunity to glorify God and to bring a smile to his face in how we walk through in the Spirit's power. Consider it. Consider your suffering as an opportunity to bring a smile to God. People will see. People will notice. You will smell like Jesus. And finally, God's word assures us that the trials that we face on the path of Christ-like obedience will be surpassed infinitely by a glory that's beyond our imaginations. Remember, we are on a triumphal procession with God. We're on a triumphal procession with God. So the end of it is God's victory and our participation in that. These sufferings will pass away. They will be as a, a blip on the, line, the timeline of eternity. Brothers and sisters, our joy in this life is belonging to Jesus. It's belonging to Jesus. It's participating in his victory. It's seeing his work grow in and through us. And it's anticipating his glory that's to come. May that be your joy. May that be my joy through his spirit in increasing measure until he returns. Amen.